I never met my dad's grandfather, Everett Taylor, but I grew up hearing stories about him. His life profoundly shaped the life of my father's And throughout childhood, my dad would share stories and pieces of his grandfather's southern Missouri country wisdom. The saying I remember the most, because my dad repeated it the most, was this. Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. Now, I heard my great-grandfather speaking from the grave this week as I wrestled with the story of doubting Thomas. Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see, a saying that could have come from the very mouth of the Apostle Thomas himself. Now, before we get too much further into the story, I need to remind us where we are today. This Sunday, we are in John's church. Now, don't be confused. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we were in a completely different church, in Mark's church. We do a lot of church hopping around Easter You remember Mark's Easter Sunday sermon last week, how the three women showed up terrified at the tomb just after sunrise. They find the stone rolled away, look inside, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. But there is a man dressed in white. The man speaks to them. He has risen, and they run from the tomb, Mark ending his sermon telling us that terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's Mark's church. But today, a week after Easter, we worship with John. And in John's church, it is a holy roller kind of church. Everywhere, people are standing up, testifying about what they have seen. Had we worshiped with John on Easter, we would have heard his sermon, a very different one that began while it was still dark. According to John, Mary Magdalene arrives first on Easter, sees that the stone is gone, and runs back to get Simon Peter. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, which tradition tells us is probably John himself, the writer of the gospel. These three disciples sprint to the tomb, the other disciple outrunning Peter and Mary. When they confirm that the tomb is empty, Mary stands outside of it weeping. That's when she sees a man. She's in a garden, so she assumes it's the gardener. Woman, why are you weeping? He asks. They have taken away my Lord, she says, and I don't know where they have laid him. Mary, says the man. And immediately upon hearing her name, she recognizes this is no gardener. This is the risen Christ speaking to her. Mary isn't terrified into silence. She goes out without being told, announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That night, Easter evening, they gather in a house, lock all the doors for fear that those who killed Jesus would come and kill them too. And out of nowhere, locked doors and all, Jesus just shows up in the room. Neither tombstones nor locked doors can keep the risen Christ away. He shows them the crucifixion wounds on his hands and his side, resurrected proof that he is with them, that the one they saw die now stands before them. Now, not all of the disciples are there. Thomas, well, he had other plans that night. And when they tell him, we have seen the Lord, well, Thomas says, unless I see those marks of the nails in his hands and not just see them, I've got to put my finger in the wounds. 
and the marks of the nails, my hand in his side. If I can do that, then I will believe. After all, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like this Thomas guy. He's gotten a bad rap in church. We call him Doubting Thomas. The disciples call him the twin. But he's more like realist Thomas to me. He has his head on straight Thomas. I get it. He wants the same thing that every other disciple got. Proof. Proof that this is Jesus. And why wouldn't he want the same? Everyone in the room had already seen the risen Christ. Everyone but Thomas. Why would Thomas not demand the same? And wouldn't we do the same? I mean, if we could ask for proof, proof that the story is real, that Jesus did die and then raise from the dead, wouldn't we ask? I'd be the first in line. Now, we crave proof. If you don't believe me, go to the bookstore. Browse the bestsellers on Amazon.com, and you will see Heaven is for Real, the book title says. A few months ago, an author of one of these books, 90 Minutes in Heaven, came to Norwalk to share his personal story about how he believed he died, went to heaven, looked around, and came back to tell Iowans about it. Now, give me a story like that. I would proclaim it loudly, testify in the church, proof that heaven is for real. Now, the other day, we were browsing the antique items for sale at the Brass Armadillo, the antique mall off of Interstate 80. And there, in the glass cabinets, there was a plaster death mask of Abraham Lincoln, right in Des Moines, Iowa. It's there as sure as I stand before you today. Now, supposedly, that mask was cast along with others from a bust that was made of Lincoln's funeral face after his assassination. Now, some doubt the story, but had there not been a lock on the cabinet, I could have touched it with my own hands. I could have stuck my fingers in the eye sockets. Instead, I just moved along because I never doubted that Lincoln lived. Not once. I never doubted that he died the way history says that he died. Now, I didn't see it for myself, nor did I meet anyone who did. But I've read their stories. I've seen pictures. There is physical evidence, newspaper articles, a blood-stained pillow and clothes, a bust made of plaster sitting in Des Moines, Iowa. I believe. I believe, but this story, this story, the story of God coming to earth as a human, a virgin birth, the escape to Egypt, the story of miracles and proclamations from mountaintops, the story of a Jew from Palestine killed by Rome, and then three days later, up from the grave, he arose. The story of post-resurrection appearances, not to multitudes, but to scared disciples in isolated gardens, locked rooms, and deserted beaches. This story, this story is hard to believe. Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see, yet all we have is testimony from witnesses long, long ago. No, I'd be the first in line right behind Thomas unless I see the marks in his hands and put my hand in those marks and into his side I will not believe. Now, if you read, if you listen to the story, Thomas gets exactly what he asked for. 
Put your finger here. See my hands, Jesus says. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Everything Thomas asks for, Jesus gives. And upon examining the evidence, well, Thomas believes. Jesus responds, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, but have believed. Now, I used to think what Jesus says here is a bit of an insult. Have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? Shame on you. Seems a bit harsh after all. They all believed, every one of them, because they had seen Jesus. But I don't know that Jesus is talking to them anymore. I I think what we're reading here is that preacher John breaking into the story, preaching to his church. And who are those who have believed without seeing? Well, you know, John's church. It's, It's a lot like our church, really. When this gospel was written, John was an old man. Decades from those days of youthful energy when he could outrun disciples to the tomb. He outlived most, if not all, of those resurrected witnesses. And he's a part of this church, this community of disciples made up of people who never saw Jesus in the flesh before or after death. John preaches this sermon to them, preaching, proclaiming all that he had witnessed himself. Have you believed because you have seen me? And then I I imagine Pastor John just looking up from his notes. He's probably got spectacles that he kind of wears on the tip of his nose. And with that kind demeanor of a loving pastor just points to his church and continues reading the story. Blessed are you, sisters and brothers, who believe without seeing. See, John's church is a lot like our church. Just moments ago, we confessed together that Christ is risen, yet none of us were there. We echo the testimony of those who were. We believe, but we do not see. Yet sometimes, sometimes, don't you wish you had more uh, apparition of the risen Christ, a visit to heaven proving to you at least that it's all for real? Shoot, give me a plaster bust of the face of Jesus, I'd be happy. Something more. We can look for proof today, dig as much as we want, but we're not going to get it, not enough to satisfy. If the story is to be believed, the risen Christ ascended into heaven long ago, taking with him the wounded hands and the side that was pierced. All we have is this testimony, testimony of witnesses. We have seen the Lord, they proclaim to us, from ages ago. But is that enough? If you're looking for proof, no, you're not going to find it. The more you dig for proof, the more doubt surfaces. But who ever said that belief required proof? Who, Who said that faith did not always come wrapped in packages of doubt? What in this story is believable? Dead, being raised, it is unbelievable. And that's the point. Believing the unbelievable, seeing what cannot be seen, finding life in the midst of death, it makes no sense. Yet this is our faith. 
Believing the unbelievable, that you are not what you believe you are. That this world is not what we believe it to be. That violence and hate are not the only way. That justice will win. That death does not have the final say, though everything around us says that it does. Believing the unbelievable, that around us new life is springing right out of the soil of the grave. Resurrection. It is unbelievable. And yet for those who have witnessed it, it's, have felt its presence, it is undeniable. And we, well, we are blessed, church. We are blessed. Blessed are you who believe but do not see. Amen. Instead of singing, our communion hymn is printed this morning. We will be blessed by Tim Ballard, who's going to sing a song for us called I am doubting Thomas. Hear this testimony and song as we prepare to come before the table of the Lord. <clears throat>